1 Peter chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. And, and I'm, I'm going to let you know in advance that I'm, I'm taking this scripture just a little bit out of its context. It, it, I'm mainly using this as a topical jumping off point, if you will, this morning. But um, most of 1 Peter is written to people who are suffering um, because, of their, because of the expression of their Christian faith. They're, they're, there's, a, there's a fiery trial that's come to to try them, and, and so Peter's talking to them about suffering, enduring um, for the Lord's sake, not suffering as an evildoer, but suffering as one who is doing what God has called us to do, and walking in righteousness and proclaiming the truth, but, but I'm going to focus on just two verses out of this, and it, and it is taking them a little bit out of the context, but I think it still applies nonetheless to what I want to say to you this morning, in First Peter chapter 4, Verse number 17, the Word of God says this, For the time has come, it does not say that the time is coming. It says, for the time is come. So that means that it had come when Peter was writing this. It's not something that we're waiting for, it's something that's happening already. For the time is come, that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now I'm going to say a little bit more about that scarcely business um, towards the end of the message. Um, I, I had all intentions of, of continuing to move forward in our study in the book of Revelation. This morning, I fi I, we finished the, the, the last sermon related to the seven letters to the seven churches last week in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Um, and I felt, honestly, in fact, when I, when, I was, when I bowed my head to pray the closing prayer at last week's service, I felt a little bit guilty and ashamed of myself. And I'm going to explain that to you in a minute. Um... And, and I couldn't get away from that Monday, and I couldn't get away from it Tuesday. And so I knew, by, I knew by Wednesday that I couldn't really move forward in the study in Revelation because I needed, to, I needed to just pump the brakes and ponder what I had already seen and what I had already heard and what I had already studied. And so this is a little bit of a review, and I'll admit that this morning, but there's a specific reason behind it. In, in every letter... To every church that Jesus addressed in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, after he, after he introduced himself, he, he talked about some of his divine attributes, he, which I think is what the church needs to do every time we gather is remind ourselves who Jesus is. And before Jesus said anything to his church in those letters, he reminded them who he was. But, but right after he reminded the church who he was, and, and in some cases what he had done for them, right after he said that, in every letter to every church, he said, I know your works. I know thy works. I know whether they're good, and I know whether they're bad. I know your works. I know what's going on. Now, 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 I want to apply that a little deeper than that, in that he not only knows what's going on in every church, he knows what's going on in every Christian. 
He knows the good and the bad. In fact, the Bible says over and over about judgment that, that the Lord is going to bring everything into judgment, whether it's good or whether it's evil. And He's already doing that in our lives, in, in the church. Um, I know thy works. I, I, I know when they're good and I know when they're not good. And let me just say this. There is no time in our life as a Christian or as a church that Jesus doesn't know our works. He, he knows it all. In fact, I would go so far as to say um, this. He not only knows our works, he knows what our works are flowing out of, and he knows our heart. And I, I hear people say that sometimes um, as an excuse for the way that they're living. They'll say, well, preacher, God knows my heart. Yeah, he does. Better than we know it ourselves sometimes. The Bible says, in fact, that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's what Jeremiah said about a man's heart. Your heart will lead you astray. Your heart will lead you to believe things about yourself that are not true. We've got to be careful with our heart. It's God that searches the heart and knows the reins and tries. That's what he said in Jeremiah when he talked about our heart being wicked. We don't need to depend on our own heart leading us. We need to let the Lord try the reins, try the judgments of our heart. So he not only knows what we're doing, good and bad, he knows the motivations behind it. He knows our heart. Um, he knows where the actions, where the attitudes, where the words originate from. He knows our heart. But as I, as I preached through those letters to the seven churches, I was amazed. I'm going to be honest. I preached through it before. Um, I've probably um, preached on some of them off and on throughout my 28 years of ministry here. I know I've been through Revelation at least one time in my ministry here, so i preached on them before. But this struck me as I was preaching on these churches this time around. It, it, I was amazed at how relevant these letters are in what's going on in the church world today. I, I, that's what stood out the most to me is that, hey, Jesus could be writing this right here, right now, today, and putting an envelope on a stamp and mailing it and, and, and I, as I went along through that study, I could name some names, and I probably did name some names. I mean, we preach on a certain church or a certain condition of a church, and I'm like, he ought to send that letter too. He, they need to hear. And as I closed the service last Sunday... And, and I felt that tinge of guilt and that, and that tinge of shame because it's always easier for us to see how and when the word applies to somebody else's life than it is to see how it applies to our own. And so this is what I felt guilty about is that I was in my mind and in my heart I was throwing a lot of people under the bus. A lot of churches, a lot of denominations. I, had, I, probably, I hope I didn't call anybody's name individually, but I had some individuals in mind that I wish I could have wrote a letter and stamped it and sent it to them. This is for you. But it's for me too. It's for, it's for you too. The Word of God is supposed to be a mirror that we look into 
And James said it like this. He said that if you are a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're like a man who looks in a mirror and sees what kind of man that he is and turns and walks away from it. And so if we're not using the Word of God as a mirror for our own lives, we ought not to be turning it around as a mirror to anybody else's life. You've you probably seen a little meme that floats around Facebook. I probably shared it. If the Apostle Paul were alive today, we'd be getting a letter. He doesn't have to be alive. We got 14 letters. And all of them's addressed to God's people. And all of them's appropriate for all time. And they apply to all of our lives all of the time. And ultimately, they're not Paul's letters either. They're Jesus' letters written to us through Paul, just like John's letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 came from Jesus to John to give to his church. So they're all... Jesus' letters to us, to those who, 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 who claim him as our Lord and Savior. He has written to us letters. And yeah, there's a part of it that is, that is certainly a love letter written to the church. But there's also a lot of it that's written that is a, um, that's just like the churches in Revelation. I know your works. And this is what I see right. And this is what I see wrong. And this is what you ought to do about it. And, and if you do, this is what I promise you. And, and so we've got this whole Bible laying in our laps that, that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and has been given to His church. And, and, and this is how that whole series started, is that Jesus told us where He's at right now. What, where's Jesus at right now? We, 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 we know about His life on earth through the Gospels, but... John's revelation is the unveiling of Jesus, um, where he's at and where he will be. It's, it's telling us stuff about Jesus that the other epistles didn't let us know a lot about. And where did Jesus declare himself to be in Revelation chapter 1? Standing among the golden candlesticks, which are representations of, of those seven churches, but also as the, seven is a number of completion or perfection. So when you see the number seven in the book of Revelation, it just means the perfect, the complete, all of it. And so when the Bible says Jesus is in, standing in the midst of his church, it wasn't just those seven churches that John addressed in the book of Revelation. It's the church in general. Where is Jesus today? He is standing in the midst of the church. And you could say this, if you're truly a Christian, he's standing in the middle of your life. If you have made him your Savior and Lord, he's in the middle of your life. He's in the midst of you in a very literal, real sense. And what's he doing? He's judging us. He is. I mean, that's what the Bible says that judgment must begin. Judgment, judgment has come, rather, to the house of God. You got a house of God. You are the temple of God. This is the house of God. This is where the people of God gather. Where's Jesus? He's in the midst of us. What's he doing? He's knowing our works. 
He's knowing what's good. He's seeing what's bad. He's correcting what's bad. He's, he's, he's uh, warning us what will happen if we don't correct what's bad. And, and so listen to me. Judgment begins in the house of God and it begins with the word of God. This is his letter to us. And what Peter, or what Paul told Timothy that this word is, is that it's profitable, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So everything that, that this book has written in it is God's letter to us about how he wants us to live our lives. It corrects what's wrong. Um, it instructs us in what's right. Uh, it promises us reward when we do what he said to do. So every time we crack the book open, Jesus is revealing himself to us and revealing ourselves to us. Same way he did in those letters to those seven churches, commending us. Don't you need to be commended sometimes? Don't you need somebody to come alongside of you and say, you're doing a good job there. Sometimes I read the book and I see, I see that Jesus is looking at my life and the way that I'm living my life and, 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 I, and I can read it from the book and, and understand that I'm doing what he wants me to do. At the same time, sometimes I can read the book and you can read the book and we can read the book and we can look into it. And if we'll look into it the way he wants us to look into it, we'll realize that not only does Jesus commend us for what's right, but he condemns us for what's wrong. He rebukes us. The reproof is there. The correction is there. The warning is there. The exhortation to repent is there. That was in all those letters too, except the two that there was no condemnation of. Jesus, they didn't have to repent of anything. They just needed to hold on. And then the promises are there. And at, every, at the end of every one of those letters, Jesus said, let, let him have an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. You know what that says? That you can hear it or not. That you can hear it or not. And, and that, that's what I felt when I bowed my head to pray and closed last week's service. Have you heard what I've said to you? Because you've heard what I've said to everybody else, but have you heard what I said to you? And so if Jesus wrote you a letter, if Jesus wrote me a letter, would it resemble any of the commendations that he wrote to those seven churches? Would it resemble any of the condemnations that he wrote to those seven churches? Judgment begins here, now, in the midst of God's people. This is our hour of judgment. This is our day of judgment. Not, and it's not a judgment of condemnation. It's not a judgment of heaven or hell. It's a judgment of that's wrong, that's right. Keep doing what's right, fix what's wrong. And so if Jesus wrote you a letter, I'm, I, I, I went back through the list and just got me a notepad down and began to write because I needed to see myself. I honestly needed to go back and just quit preaching to everybody else and say, Jesus, speak to me. Show me. And so I think everything that he commended and everything that he condemned in those churches um, can be seen in five places. I've, I've kind of condensed some of them. If Jesus wrote you a letter, would he condemn you for a waning love? For a love that's growing cold. Now I described that to you, and I'm not going to go back and re-preach every one of these messages, but we described that. If you look at your marriage and ask that question, 
Is, is, is the love in our marriage relationship waning or is it growing stronger? And, I, and, and here's the way that I look at that. Um, in my relationship with my wife, I can tell you when, my, when, I, when I know our love is strong is when we, when we enjoy being with each other. Now, y'all know it's true sometimes in marriage you don't really enjoy being with each other. <laughs> but I know when my relationship with Cindy is where it ought to be because there is joy when we're together. And I, and I want to be in her presence. Um, I, I know that, there's, that the love in our relationship is not growing cold when we're contented with one another. So if Jesus wrote a letter to you, would he caution you that your love is growing cold? That you don't find the joy in your relationship that you used to find? That you, and you, you may still be going through all of the motions of religious exercise, but is the joy there? Is the contentment there? Is, is it something that you want to do? Or is it something that you just feel like you have to do? Is it more out of duty than it is devotion? Because let's, be, let's just be honest again with ourselves that sometimes we, we can do all the right things, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons. And I don't know that there's ever a wrong reason to do the right thing, but, but if, you, if you serve completely and solely because it's your duty to do this or your duty to do that, you can keep doing that endlessly, but there won't be any love involved. And I would say you open your heart up to the tempter. That's true in your marriage relationship. That's true in your relationship with Jesus. And I don't think there's any way if your love is waning for that love not to eventually just grow cold and for you to be in very much danger of stepping out of that relationship and pursuing the things of this world. Would he condemn you for tolerant liberalism? And that is of doctrines or actions, doings, if you will, that are out of, out of line with His will and with His word. Would, would, would He condemn you for being tolerant of things in your life, in your home or in your church, that you know full well are out of line with His will? That you know full well are not in accordance with His word? Now, I know this covers a broad subject, um, but Jesus said to two, at least two of the churches that they were tolerating things that they should not have tolerated. In spite of the fact there were things to commend them for, that they had, a, a, they had tolerated some teachings and they had tolerated some activities um, that he did not approve of and that he called them to repent of. And I think every day of our lives we ought to take stock of ourselves and say and, and just say, am I, am, I, am I doing some things? Am I believing some things that I understand and know are outside of God's will for my life, for my home, for my marriage, for this church? What am I willing to tolerate? Jesus condemned that tolerant liberalism. Would he condemn you for apathetic indifference? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm combining some of the churches in this, but, but would he condemn you for being lukewarm? Last week's message was, I guess that's probably what made me just open my eyes because the layout of seeing church churches, the worst of all. You know, it was the worst of the worst in the seven churches. But as I began to look back, he didn't condemn them for any outright wickedness. It was not to the church at Laodicea. It was not that they were 
involved in sexual perversion. Um, he, didn't, he didn't condemn them that they had false doctrine or he didn't even really point out any of their practices being all out of line. What, what he said to the church at, at Laodicea is that you're not cold and you're not hot. You're just, you're just lukewarm and you make me want to vomit you out of my mouth. You're indifferent. You're apathetic. You're not being who I've called you to be. You're not doing what I've called you to do. You're just going through the motions every week. You're lukewarm in your faith. You're lukewarm in the exercise of your faith. You don't have any zeal for Christ on the inside of you, and there's nothing... There's no zeal for you, uh, uh, for Christ for you on the outside. You're not taking what's in you and taking it out to the world. In fact, Jesus implied at the end of that that he wasn't even in the midst of that church anymore, that he was on the outside knocking trying to get in. If you open the door, I'll come in and have fellowship with you, and you'll have fellowship with me. They were spiritually empty, but they were apathetic and indifferent toward that. See, it's easy for us to get that place in our life where we just get, we ought to be contented with Christ, but we just get content in our faith and content in the exercise of our faith. And, 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 and we just do what we do out of duty and we get, uh, we get lukewarm, stale. So that we're not growing spiritually, we're not helping anybody else to grow spiritually. And, and can I tell you, Christianity ain't just about getting to heaven. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your ticket to heaven is paid. It is bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. It is. You on your way to heaven, you can check that all, you can check that box. But that ain't all that being a Christian is about. It ain't just about going to heaven when you die. It's about living for Christ while you are alive, being his representative, his ambassador, his servant, his soldier. On earth, and if we're and if we're not doing those things, then we're being apathetic and indifferent in the exercise of our faith. So, would he condemn you for that? Would he condemn you for your proud self-deception? Again, the church at Laodicea said, "Hey, we don't need anything. We got it. We're rich. Increase with goods. Have need of nothing." Jesus said, you're poor, wretched, miserable, blind, naked. That, that, that church of all the churches just would not look in the mirror. They just puffed up. They just deceived themselves to think that they had something that they did not possess. So anytime we refuse to see ourselves as we truly are, we fall into that proud self-deception. Um, I, I think I shared this last week, but I, I, I keep, I'm reminded of every time I read this text that, that the publican and the, and the um, Pharisee that went to the temple that day to pray, y'all remember the story, the Pharisee, man, he walked right up to the front of that church and throwed his shoulders back and his head back and said, God, I thank you that I pay tithes, that I fast, that I pray. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that publican at the back of the building. The Bible said that old publican knew who he was, poor in spirit. What the Beatitude said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That publican said, wouldn't even lift up his eyes, smote himself on, on the chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Jesus said the publican went home justified that day. See, it's easy. It, 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 can, it, it can be easy for us to come into the church and, and not and open the book and read the book and study the book and not see ourselves for who we truly are. Would he condemn you for being a Christian in name only? That church at Sardis, he said you're dead and dying. You have a name that you live. You call yourself a Christian. You call yourself a church. You've got a reputation for being a Christian and a church. But what's true about you is that you're dying. You're dead and dying. There's no, there's no fruit there. There's no, there's no growth in your life. And, and he said, even at Sardis, there's a few that remain. He said, you need to strengthen the good that remains that's ready to die. Would he condemn you for being a Christian in name only? Dry bones without any spiritual life or purpose. I know we live in the Bible Belt of America, but it's, it is um, it's sad to me. The number of people in this part of the country who declare themselves to be Christian but have no fruit whatsoever to back that claim up. And I, you know, you've heard the story before. If you, were to, if you were to be put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to support that claim? And you can think about some of the questions that you might be asked by the attorney or by the judge. I think we ought to, we ought to ask ourselves sometimes, is, is there enough going on in my life that others can see that my profession of faith is authentically also my possession of faith. I don't think a pastor ought to ever have to stand up at a funeral and struggle to find something to say about a person's life who professed to be a Christian. I'm going to tell you the hardest funerals I've ever preached is those funerals where somebody made a profession of faith, was baptized, and was a member of a church, but didn't have any fruit to show for it. Because while you want to bring comfort to the family, you also don't want to misrepresent the gospel. Y'all live your life in such a way that somebody can point to it and say, this is the evidence, this is the evidence, this is the evidence. If Jesus wrote you a letter, would he commend you for keeping his word? Would he commend you for keeping his word? I loved studying that word kept in that passage of scripture because when you read the Strong's Concordance, um, there, there are three descriptive words that are used for that business of keeping his word. Holding it, beholding it, and upholding it. Holding it, beholding it, and upholding it. And what I, what I think that means is when you keep his word, that means you not only believe his word, but that you practice his word and that you proclaim his word. You're holding it in your life. You're beholding it. You're letting it look at your life, which means you're practicing. You're holding it as the standard of your faith. That's the first. When you read our treaties of faith, it says that we believe that God's word is inspired and fallible and errant and mutable and the only authority for our faith and practice. That's holding the word of God up high and saying this is our standard. This is what God's going to judge us by. We're holding it. We're beholding it. We're looking into it, looking at our lives and making those corrections. And then we're proclaiming it to others so that they'll know 
who they are, whose they are. If they're not saved, they'll know they're not saved. If they are saved, they'll find the assurance of salvation that comes from God's word. Holding, keeping his word is believing, practicing, proclaiming it personally in our own lives and publicly in the lives of those who are around us. Would he commend you for honoring his name? That is to exalt him with your life and lips. One of the first things that stood out to me in studying these letters, and I know that I've read them before, I know I've preached them before. One of the first things he did, um, the first letter that he wrote is, you hate what I hate. And I commend you for hating what I hate. But I think it also needs to be said that if we're going to really honor the name of Christ, we don't only have to hate what he hates, but we need to love what he loves and, and do what he did. John chapter 14 verse 12 said, the one that believes in him, the works that Jesus said this, whoever believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. He's sending the Holy Spirit back, so that we can go into the world and be Christ to the world. So when you honor his name, that means that you take your life and with your life and with your lips, you exalt the Lord Jesus Christ by hating what he hates, by loving what he loves, and by doing what he did. Being his ambassador. Would he commend you for honoring his name? That made me think about somebody told me the other day that they, um, and this has happened on more than one occasion. Let me ask, can I ask you to do something? We don't do this a whole lot anymore. Um, we, we hadn't had shirts made in a long time, has Zion Hill on it, but somebody said the other day that, that they saw somebody come out of um, a store with a suitcase full of beer in her arm and a Zion Hill softball shirt on. <laughs> we had a softball team in a long time, but they probably bought a shirt at Goodwill. And I thought, yeah, they all think he's a member in good standing and everything's hunky-dory and I don't know what else is going on in his life. But if we honor Christ's name, it just means that we don't bring reproach to it. That we don't live our life in such a way that somebody can talk bad about Christ or Christianity. The whole context of what I read to you in First Peter this morning said, don't, if you're going to suffer, don't suffer as one that's doing wrong. Suffer, for, suffer as one that's doing right. If somebody's going to talk bad about you, let it be that they're talking bad about your good. Not talking bad about your evil. That's how you honor the name of Christ. Would he commend you for honoring his name? Would he commend you for loving his kingdom? I think that just means that some of what he didn't see in those churches, that they were not, they were, they had, especially Laodicea and Sardis, they had become so internally focused that they didn't see the work that needed to go on outside the church. They still had a reputation for being in the church, but there wasn't any growth there. They were dead and dying. Um, they had decreased in number. They had decreased in influence. And so when you love his kingdom, are you laboring to see that kingdom expanded? And I think the first place the kingdom has to expand is in our own lives. We ought to get up every morning and pray this prayer. Lord, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. And then pray beyond that. Lord, let your will be done in this country. Let it be done in my family. Let it be done in my church. Let it be done in this country. But let it first be done in me. I want your kingdom to come and be in me. The kingdom of God is within you. That's what Jesus said. Loving his kingdom is laboring to see it expanded in your life and in the lives of those around you. Would he commend you for enduring for his glory? 
That means whatever persecution, whatever, whatever um, trial, whatever suffering may come your way, that you remain loyal. The church at Smyrna and Philadelphia were the two churches that he had nothing but commendations for. And, and to the church at Smyrna, he's like, I know your poverty. I know, and I know, I know that you're suffering persecution. But he said, you're so rich. But thou art rich, he said. And they were not rich in material things. They were not rich in, 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 in worldly success, but they were rich in their faith. They were rich in the expression of their faith. They were enduring a great hardship. Um, but they were doing all that they did for the glory of God. S loyal to him even in the midst of their long periods of suffering. I found out that it doesn't take a lot to shut a lot of Christians down. Just shut them up and shut them down. A little bit of a little bit of kickback, a little bit of pushback, a little bit of negativity, a little bit of criticism because of a stand that you've taken, because of a conviction that you have. That's that's biblical, that's thoroughly biblical, that's grounded and settled in the Word of God. But but I gotta back off on this. You know, I I, I just read I'm I'm chasing a rabbit, but I'm about done anyway. Um, I saw that the that minor league baseball this week released a guy who had sold one of them multi million dollar contracts. They released him because of his position on homosexuality and abortion. And he made a public statement about it and they, they cut him loose. He ain't backing up. He ain't backing down. I've seen some others that have tried to make a stand and the persecution came and they start, they start apologizing for it. They start backing up and backing off. Are we willing to endure what's coming? Would he commend us right now that we endure, that we're loyal in the midst of the suffering that comes? Would he commend you for repenting when he rebukes you? Now I know this is this kind of captures everything that I've already said, but repentance is not something that you do one time and you're forever finished with it. <laughs> Repenting is something that Christians are called to do every day. When the Lord puts his finger on a place in your life where it's wrong, would he commend you for seeing? the error of your ways, and repenting of it. I can tell you what happens in a lot of our lives, and I believe this is probably all of our first response. And I think it's because it's part of the natural man. It's part of that old man that keeps trying to resurrect himself in our life. Our, our, our first response to rebuke is to make an excuse. And I'm, I'm talking about when I, I, I can do this when I'm reading my daily devotion in the morning and I see God put his finger on something in my life and said, you know that ain't right. And I'm like, but Lord, you don't. No, I'm, 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 I'm arguing with the Lord. Here I go, arguing with the Lord. <laughs> Y'all know he ain't never been wrong. And I can't say that and you can't say that. But we know he ain't never been wrong. So would he commend you for just saying, Lord, you're right. And I want to do better. I want to confess that and acknowledge that and, and, and move away from that in my life. And I need you to help me do that. That's just submitting to his lordship. 
Don't get defensive about it. Don't make excuses for it. Just say, yes, Lord. I hear you. Made me think about what Peter said when they'd been fishing all night and didn't catch anything. And Jesus said, cast out into the deep and throw your net on the other side. And Jesus said, Lord, we know what we're doing when it comes to fishing now. I mean, we're professional fishermen. And we done fished all night and ain't caught nothing. And our nets are clean. And, but at thy word, I will. Isn't that good? Lord, you said it. I got all these reasons why I think we ought not to. But your word is what I want my will to bend to. And when he cast the net out, they pulled a, a net full of fishes that was breaking the net. And if we'll just do what God's called us to do, if we'll repent when he rebukes, we'll see the net full. We'll see God's blessings and favor be poured out in our lives. So whether, so whether by condemning or by not commending us, hear, hear me when I say this. If Jesus is condemning you for something, that means you're committing a sin. But if Jesus is not commending you for those things, you're also committing a sin by omitting something that he's called us to do. And so every day of our lives, every time we open up this book, his letters judge us. His word judges us. His word looks at our works. His word looks at our heart. And his judgment is always right. And we always have a choice whether or not we hear or heed. He won't force his will upon us, but he will reveal his will to us and call us to repentance. So, so the choice is ours, but the judgment's always going to belong to him. I think sometimes we got this misguided notion that when we get to heaven, we're going to get to judge ourselves, And that's not true. Jesus is judging us now, and he's going to judge us then. And his judgment is true. Always has been and always will be. It's going to stand. And I told you I'm going to come back to this. And I'm, but when he said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18, If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Now, sometimes we read this like, I'm just going to get into heaven by the skin of my teeth type thing. But that's not what the word means. And, and you, you can look it up in Strong's Concordance. It's used three or four other times in the Bible. Most of them are in Acts chapter 28 when there was a shipwreck going on. And, and the, the literal translation of if the righteous scarcely be saved is with much difficulty. Scarcely is with much difficulty. And I want you to understand that we will be saved because of what Christ has done for us. But while we're being saved, it requires us to, to daily crucify our flesh, to daily put off the old man, to daily put on the new man. It is... It is a consistent, perpetual looking into the Word of God and letting the Word of God judge us and clean us 
wash us, convict us, convince us, move us from where we are to where he wants us to be. That's part of the sanctification experience. Justification came into your life when you trusted Christ as your personal Savior. Sanctification comes into your life when you submit to his lordship every day by repenting of what he condemns, by doing what he commends in our life. So where does that leave the unbeliever? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want you to understand this. We're already being judged. The Bible says that the judgment of the wicked is reserved for the day of judgment. God's not judging you today. Your judgment is reserved. If you're an unbeliever here, your judgment is... In fact, I can show you when. You go turn to the end of the book of Revelation. There's a great white throne set. And, and, and all of the dead are raised at that time. And they stand before God. And not one of those dead, I believe, are... I don't believe any of those names are written in the Lamb's book of life and they're all cast into hell. That, your day of judgment is reserved. The Bible says he knows how to deliver the godly out of these trials and he knows how to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment. So Jesus is judging his church now, but he's going to judge the lost then. Where does it leave the unbeliever? If God's already judging his church, judgment has to begin at the house of God. And if the righteous are being saved with much difficulty... If the righteous are scarcely being saved, where are the ungodly and the sinner going to appear? And it's, and it's very simple. If you don't trust Christ, you're going to be judged in your sin, spiritually dead, unforgiven, and eternally condemned. It's just that simple. The same book that judges and corrects the Christian is going to be used to judge and condemn the one who refused to believe it. The same book that judges and corrects the Christian is going to be used to judge and condemn the one who refused to believe it. Jesus has written all of us a letter, a bunch of them. This book in itself is one big long letter from Genesis to Revelation where God has revealed himself to us where God has revealed ourselves to us and where God has revealed his plan for us for time and eternity it's, it's up to us what we do with this letter but I would, I, would, I would plead with you this morning to hear it and to heed it in every way possible Take that list this week. I'm, I'm being serious now. Take that list this week and lay it before you. You print it off online. Get up every morning and say, Lord, would you condemn me today for these things? Would you commend me today for these things? And where you find any place where your line is outside of the will of God, he gives you an opportunity to repent and to receive the promises that come with it. Let's stand together. Lord, thank you for your word. I'm, I'm grateful, Lord, sometimes you just make me, by your spirit, you just stop me in my tracks and make me, make, me, make me stop applying the word of God to others and not considering what it's saying to me. Lord, may we always see our own faults and failures and our own weaknesses and wanderings away from you better than we can see that of others. 
and you've called us to exercise judgment, but where that judgment has to begin is that we make sure that we've taken the log out of our own eye so that we can see clearly to help somebody else get the splinter out of theirs. So I pray that in all of our preaching and all of our proclaiming, all of our reading and all of our studying of your word, that before we ever make application to anybody else, that we make application to our own lives first and foremost. Help us to see ourselves this morning as you see us. Because the way you see us is the truth about who we are. I'm grateful that we serve a God whose goodness leads us to places of repentance. And you've given opportunity for that today. So just like you told that church at Laodicea, if any man will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. So help us to hear this morning. Help us to respond in faith and in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. you being here this morning. I hope, I hope that you'll just take the message and look for a place this week just sit down and ponder it because that's what I've been doing all week long. I found some shortcomings in my life. I promise you I know where they're at. And um, the better I get at finding others, the less visible my own are to me. So, And I don't want it to be that way. Lord, thank you for this day for these people, for your word, for your spirit. Thank you that you love us enough to rebuke us and chasten us. Thank you that when we fail, you don't just write us off, but that your mercies are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. The truth of the matter is, I'd be lost a long time ago if that were not true. But help us every day that we live to examine ourselves and our faith and our walk 
and may, may you always be able to say of us, well done. Help us to look into the mirror and fix what we find wrong so that we can be a good witness for you in this world that we live in. If there's ever been a time that we need to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, it's right now. And we can, sure, we can be sure to believe that the world is going to look for and find every flaw that they can find in our walk. And so help us to make that hard for them. We'll praise you for the work that you do in us and the work you do through us in Jesus' name. Amen.